Hey Sohani, welcome to Network Capital. Uh, you're one of those who discovered her purpose early on in life and since then have gone on to do incredible things. I mean, your CV is so long, I think I will not uh, be able to do justice to it if I say it out loud. Let's, let's just start with your introduction. Um, tell us what you care about most and how do you like to identify yourself? Who are you? Yeah, that's a great question, Utkarsh. And also, thank you for having me here. Uh, you are an incredible uh, force for the youth in India. So I'm really glad to be here and I'm honored to be on this platform. Um, for me, what really matters is, is women's stories and really how women have such a um, strong foothold, I mean, in their own household and what they're, if, and if any, if uh, a woman wants to be able to change anything in her life, it really involves changing everybody else uh, in her household, in her community, in her society. And I think that's what's really so powerful about working with women in general and understanding what they really bring to the table and just how their voice uh, amplifies other people's voices in the household. Um, so what really matters to me is really how we can amplify those voices even further, provide them, provide them with platforms that they can be heard on a national, on a global scale, and um, they can be supported in the best possible way. Now, what's, what's the best possible way to support women? Giving them financial independence, um, providing them with agency so that they can make their own decisions, and us not making decisions on behalf of them or for them. And that's what... I've been trying to do, I think, all my life, and I intend to keep doing um, going forward as well, is how can we just give the power to the women to decide what they want to do with it? Yeah. So uh, tell us about your high school, because, uh, you know, you started your organization fairly early on. What was the dinner table conversation like? And how did that lead you towards taking that first step towards addressing this problem? Yeah, I mean, it's, I can take you even further back where these conversations, table time conversations, uh, really revolved around issues of development in India. My father works in the Indian government. Mom works in Nanikali, which is a uh, an organization supporting underprivileged um, girls in India. And we've been, I mean, I, I grew up in, not in Mumbai, but actually in small towns across the state of Maharashtra. I was born in Usmanabad, Latu, Yavatmal, Nagpur, and then moved to Mumbai. So living in these small towns, I think, um, it really gives a sense of, um, of understanding of how real India lives. Um, at the time, it was too small, so I think it's difficult to really understand what that means and why they live like that. Um, but you get that sense. And then when I moved to Mumbai and I was I was in a school um, right next to and near the Dharavi slums, the all famous Dharavi slums, um, which are actually so well developed and they have um, such an incredible industry happening inside. Um, so when I first went there, I was 15 um, and I was motivated to go there by um, someone who then became a mentor of mine for the longest time. His name was Dr. Jokin Arpatam. Um, and he uh, would come home more often and actually join us at dinner. Um, so it used to be dad and him debating a lot. Um, and I would watch those debates about just how um, the slum redevelopment process where people are being relocated from slums into buildings uh, was something that he was fighting against and that uh, the government in many cases was actually trying to promote because that's the only way to clean up the city. 
So um, I would uh, go to those sites and in fact see that, you know, on one day they're living um, currently on the pavements and in the slums. And then the next day they were actually being raised off and bulldozed. And the people that were supposed to be promised buildings, may flats, they were not actually given any keys at all. And they were just lying on the streets. Um, and that sorts of, you know, it, it tends to then shape how you think about um, just where there are huge gaps in government policy enforcement and while what they're trying to do may, might actually be very beneficial, um, the way it's implemented on the ground may not be so and they might not have complete understanding of people's needs the way they actually are. Um, as well as people's stories are not necessarily being heard in the right possible way because they're being activists. So a lot of the time at the dinner table as well, I used to be an activist and like debating with them being like, how can we not take their voices into consideration? And they were like, well, they just keep they just keep screaming and, and being angry about the issues, but they don't mm -hmm. actually have legitimate solutions to them. And it's very difficult at the time then to really think about what is the appropriate next step that can actually not anger even more people. Um, so I think I was I was given a lot of lectures at the time about how to be less sentimental. Um, I would break down a lot about the issues that I would see on the ground. Every time I'm seeing a four-year-old who is filling up water buckets because their family has no access to water right now because their house has been bulldozed off, or when a woman is talking about the times that she's having to go to a public toilet and counting, men are counting the number of times she's going. At all these times, you start to really wonder, like, what is wrong with our world? Um, and I think those kinds of conversations and we really speak about and, and uh, I would often be encouraged that don't like don't get bogged down by this because the more and more sentimental that you get about it, the less likely you are to help others and more that you are just keep, you're, you will keep learning, but you will not be able to support anyone else because what they need is empowerment and for them to be lifted up, not that you right. are coming in to try to change something and feeling sentimental about it. So I think that's how really the conversations went um, at the time. It was a lot about story building and like them lecturing me about how I should not be doing things. So what does the word moment of uh, lift mean to you? And what was your moment of lift? Oh, um, I think moment of lift is, I think, multiple moments. It's every time the barriers that are holding women back are being removed. Um, so that and, and, and this can be a tradition. So it can be a time when a woman is told that at the, after marriage, you're supposed to go to your husband's house and that is holding her back because her parents have not invested enough in her because they know that ultimately she's not going to be taking care of us. Um, that kind of a tradition, when we start thinking about it differently, it's a time when she's lifted. When we try providing family planning contraceptive services to a woman, giving her full control over her birth spacing, and her, uh, the number of children that she has, um, I think that's a moment of lift for her. So there are like multiple times, every time you're removing a constraint in her way and letting her just fly and letting her just be, I think that those are all moments of lift. For me, um, I think my parents grew up in Lucknow, uh, which is actually a very, um, a society where my mom was always kind of restricted and she had a curfew in the evening. Um, she, she was only ever allowed to go to an only girl school, only girls college immediately after married off. Um, and she had like tanofied, like I'm never going to have uh, my daughter experience the same. And I think that moment of literally came from my mom having a realization that I'm going to be a rebel and never hold her back. 
And because she had decided that um, every time I asked that, hey, I actually want to go to South Africa and work there. And while everybody else in the family was protesting and being like, what is this girl going to do in Africa? Let's not like this is this is insane. Um, my mom would be like, no, why not? What if, I mean, like, there's, there's no difference. You'd let my brother do it, so why not me? And so I think a lot of my moments of literally came from her not holding me back and her yeah. being like a, like a champion for me. Um, and my father too. I think my father was the first person to speak to me about my period. He was the first mm -hmm. person to speak to me about um, how he would, at the age of 22, go door to door talking to women about the importance of breastfeeding and about the importance of taking care of and going to the hospital to give birth and things like that um, in his government job. So um, I think it really came from my parents having those moments of lift, which is why I feel like it's so important for the, the nurturing environment for a child to be such that it is not holding women back. Yeah. And you recently had a wonderful conversation on moment of lift as well uh, with uh, somebody you admire recently. How, how yeah. was that a moment of lift or are you too shy or too you know how does it feel so Melinda Gates so I spoke to Melinda Gates because she'd written a book on moment of lift um, and she has always been a lifelong role model for me just somebody who has done um, an incredible amount of uh, global agenda setting for women and really setting the stage for what women um, in the world should be, like where should we be investing our money and our energies on um, and where women uh, actually have a uh, majority of the constraints really holding them back. And every chapter that she has is like a moment of lift. So it's like a, um, whether it's talking about family planning and contraception or talking about unpaid work that women have at home um, or talking about just child marriage or just lots and lots of constraints that women have. Um, and she is just such a genuine, um, you know, person, real person who understands that women's stories matter and women's stories substantiated with data that show how the this is not just the case for one or two or five women, but actually the case for 500 million women or 300 million women. I think it's a really, um, I think it's, it's, it's a very rare thing actually where somebody has the power like her to set the stage and use the power in the right way um, and understanding truly the needs of the women on the ground um, and then being able to use the skills and resources that she has um, in a place like the US or in, at Seattle or in the Silicon Valley to actually be utilized for the right purposes, um, which we don't see that yeah. often. So for me, I think she's just like this role model who has done things in the right way um, and really leads the light for many people to really follow. Yeah, so it was insane. Um, I mean, it was a very surreal experience. <laughs> it was surreal. It was, uh, I read about it and I just like felt so happy that you finally got a chance to have a tete-a-tete. -tete. Although she has previously written and tweeted about you, which again, like makes me incredibly proud and inspired. <laughs> so uh, it was an emotional process, right? Reading the book, uh, reading Moment of Lift. How do you relate it to your uh, first hundred days in entrepreneurship, which I understand was in your teens? Yeah. Oh, um, I think I actually, when I read her book, um, I was bawling. I was on a flight. I remember from India to the US and every story that she's written up, I felt like I'd experienced some version of that 
in the first few years when I used to be so sentimental and because it was one it was the time when she's talking about what had really inspired her and much of many of her stories are actually based in India based in Pune slums or Mumbai slums and she talks about these cases where I'm like wow yes this is exactly what but I'm so glad somebody has actually penned it down and so beautifully and then actually come out with a conclusion and a resolution from there that has actually inspired her to do a lot of really a big investments in this space as well um, when I had started I think I definitely did not have the understanding or the resources uh, the the way she had the way you know the the time in which she has come and she's understood these stories and she's really done something about them was a very different situation from when I first learned about these stories I was just like mind boggled I was like oh my god how is this happening and how are we just sitting around and not even talking about it like it was shocking this is 2011 2010 when i mean at the time i was i was talking about toilets all the time and i felt like nobody was and i was like why are we not talking about toilets and the gates foundation was one of the only organizations talking about toilets which is why i started obsessing over them because i was like you're not even based in india but you understand this is a big issue here but women are constantly mm-hmm. saying i am being harassed because i don't have a toilet i just want a simple toilet it costs 3000 rupees to get a whole toilet in my house but for some reason my husband my family my society community laughs at me and they don't want me to get one like there are simple things like that that you're just like Oh my God, like, wh- why are we not? And then I'd go, I'd go back to this hi-fi school that I was at in Mumbai and be so annoyed. And like, you know, people are talking about things that I just felt were just irrelevant to the world. Um, and I went to this like phase of just activism, I think internally where I was boiling and I was just like, I don't know how to control my energy right now. So I don't think that I repurposed it in the most effective way at the time. And I had then set out that I want to make sure that what I'm learning and doing here is really repurposed and and channeled in the right way, which is when um, I, for years, actually, we had not founded the organization. At the time, I was just um, talking to women groups after groups. We were working on various sanitation projects for the first five years or so. Um, And then then around that time, women kept saying, Sohani, we we should start something for our women together. And at the same time, I was an undergraduate student at Duke and they gave some funding um, and they were like, hey, we know you have ideas. We would like to support you in kind of whatever you do. And that was like a green light being like, hey, I have resources here. Women here are demanding that we start something together now. I never intended to start an organization. Um, it was supposed to be a movement again for with women on the ground. And we were just supposed to be helping them understand what their needs are. And we realized, okay, maybe we do need to now register ourselves because to receive this money, you have to register and so on. And so I think it like the entrepreneurship journey did not start off in a very I guess, traditional way. It started off just by need coming up and by resources being there. Um, and so I think in the, the first four months or so, we focused mainly on uh, getting from ideation to all the way up until like employment, which was the ultimate goal is how can we give women financial independence? Um, and so we, we went from focusing on a topic of menstrual health, which we felt had kept coming up in, in conversations with women about what is holding them back. It was stigma. It was rela- issues related to dignity and respect. And periods is something, the moment you bring it up, a girl starts giggling, hiding her face and just being like, nee, 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 mein baat nahi karte. like talk about something else. Like, why are you coming to talk about this? And you're like, well, okay, so... Tell me, tell me about that time of the month. Tell me, what do you do? And then you realize that 
they can't and they probably don't do much to manage their period cycle so it's actually a problem we should be talking about this and this is holding them back um so we and once you start breaking this barrier down potentially you could break other barriers down too because suddenly she's like wait i never spoke about this topic if i can talk about this topic now why can't i talk to him about domestic violence why can't i talk to him about what he's doing wrong with me why can't i start questioning him suddenly about things that i've never questioned him about before um so that i think was the realization as well in the first few months it was trying to translate the stories into meaningful ways in which we could empower the women in tangible ways because otherwise right. lifting women up is such a broad vague thing that it it can entail yeah. so many different things and also nothing at all yeah how did you decide to name the organization and uh, what was the mission that you that you set for yourself and what was the strategy because mission uh setting is one thing then working towards it as a student to do uh, may not have been easy i would imagine yeah um because we had community trust built for many years before then um i didn't realize how powerful that would be when starting the organizations when we started it was um like we already had our first set of women we had the network on the ground already to spread the message um so building community trust which normally would have been i think a big um constraint wasn't there what what we did not have at first was like was really this name and we did not really know what we were going to call it was it going to be an organization was it just going to be a movement um so we women would often call me tota mena they'd say ki you speak like a tota mena you just keep talking and so i was like well then we all should be like that's the whole purpose of this is that we should be talking like tota mena and uh women often say when they have their period coming up that mera mahina aa raha hai um so we wanted them to basically say talk about your mahina like a mana bird um so hmm. it was kind of came out of that that you know like mana is just a symbol of being able to speak about the things that you're most afraid to discuss aloud and keep talking um and mahila just means women so it's just mana it's a foundation or an organization for women to help them speak up about the issues they're most afraid to discuss aloud and we feel that that is really what's constraining women and holding them back and if they were to speak up more they would be lifted um so i think that's kind of like uh, the 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 reason for why we started it off like that and it can entail a lot of things so we started off with menstrual health um and then over time we've grown into three different pillars so we have mena health mena employ and mena research and mena health really has a focus on menstrual health and now overall sexual reproductive health of women which are all issues that women are not able to speak to anyone else about in their communities which is yeah. shocking at the end of our sessions we actually have women that come up to us and our trainers and they want to have private sessions with them saying things like i have infertility issues i have not had a period in 15 months i have you know all these very issues you're just like wow i mean have you spoken to anyone about this and they're like nahi hum kisse baat karenge like which the, all the informal doctors that are available to them in slums are male one two they know that they don't have degrees and they are probably fake three the word will spread the moment you've gone to them and 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 said this the person is usually from the community and they're going to spread it to others that hey this person has infertility issues so they don't they don't open up to anyone about this and we started to realize we have actually a lot of um 
more work here to do and therefore MENA Health now is broadening up its scope to cover all of uh, the sexual reproductive health issues that women are afraid to discuss aloud. And similarly, mental health as well has come up a lot, especially around COVID, um, which is why we've now started a whole mental health, um, telehealth sessions now that we can, that the women from the slums can call up and speak to our counselors as well. Um, yeah. And MENA employs really for providing women with employment opportunities. That's one that we're trying to grow. Um, it's not one that we focused immediately on when we started. Um, and research is just trying to provide the evidence to show that what we are doing is it really the right way forward? Should we be modifying or changing up our programs? And also trying to experiment with audacious new ideas um, that we make sure that you know we're trying them out. And because we are not large bureaucratic organization and a small grassroots organization, we can experiment with a lot of ideas on the ground at all times. Yeah. Um just like uh, qu quickly on your on your strategy and mission yeah. your initially as I, as i understand you you had a door to door plan of action because just nobody was speaking about it, it was a larger question i want to you, know, you to explain is that how do you really mobilize a community is it like uh, one person at a time is it like small groups at a time how does that really work and what did uh, your organization do about it it is so tough um, it is so demotivating as well, because especially with when the team members are trying to go and you go, I mean, initially what we started off with, we were basically going door to door, inviting women to come for a group session, um, to talk to them about uh, issues that are common to all of them. Um, and we thought that maybe we need some sort of an introduction so that once they once we have women show up at their doorstep in future, they're not confused and they don't mistrust us. Oftentimes people coming at the doorstep, you don't know where they're coming from, who they really are. Um, but we, and they would all agree that we'd be like, yeah, 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 we'll come, we'll come. And no one would show up. Um, and we would just have these meetings that we're setting up and we, and we would go like five, six times to remind the same household and they just would not come. We then started to understand, well, then what is what are, what, what is their incentive to really come? Um, and their incentive, I mean, which we thought would be that they want to learn about this topic as well. They want to learn about how uh, women's bodies work, how women's health is important for them. But actually, they didn't really understand the need for it or they didn't feel this was helpful. Um, what the, if we had held a session about jobs, then come here, then the women would have actually showed up also. Or if we had said, we will give you some cash transfers, women would have come. And so we started to realize that, well, we don't want to go down that route of being an NGO that's giving stuff out for free. And that's how we're getting women to come. And that's kind of like a way of bribing them every time to show up for meetings, which I know a lot of organizations are end up having to do because that's just the only way to get community uh, to come to, to, to come out. So what we started doing was um, a few things. So we identified these uh, leaders that we were anyway working with. Those leaders identified like their next group of 10 people who they would identify as like, these are my next future leaders. Um, and these are women that can spread the word. Those women then started to get their friends to come. And we just, so we, we stopped doing this door to door business, which was revealing and leading to almost nothing um, to then having identified stronger social networks within the community and working through them. We even tried uh, doing this with religious leaders. It didn't really work. Um, they are very, some of them might be very willing to listen. Most of them are still very against talking about these issues. They tend to be male and they don't tend to be like very open to talking about things that could corrupt women's minds or could give them the power to think differently. You don't want them to think differently. 
Um, and so we, we've had that. And then once we started building some networks, um, we started also inviting a lot of people uh, in five, six people groups as focus group discussions in our office. Um, we'd show them around we did actually see the women that are employed in the office. They'd speak to women that were just like them, whose lives had been changed. And then they'd come actually and be like, we want to join you. How can we join you in any way possible? Um, mm -hmm. We started to have male champions also through this. So this was all only with women and because we thought initially that everything that we do, women, men will never want to take part. But that was a wrong assumption, actually. Um, there were many men we on Raksha Bandhan two years ago or three years ago now. Um, we had held a session where we had sponsored a sister instead of sponsored a girl uh, session where brothers came in. Um, and this was about 50, 60 brothers for the first time. They were in a room and we were just talking about how periods are... Uh, are normal and that every girl gets them your sister gets them and this is how you can support her and this is why she gets them and so on and men like you know when we have when we hold these sessions for women they would giggle they would be on their phones they'd look away um, they'd be very shy until they really start to get used to it a little while later men never looked at their phones they were so curious because they'd never heard anything about this ever before nobody had mm. talked this to them nobody had talked to them about this and they were very curious to learn um, and pin drop silence in the crowd we never had to manage them also and then we realized at the end of the session many men raised up their hands and in front of everybody they're saying ma'am like nobody taught us this and we are so happy that we have finally learned this and at the end, they met their sisters and then they gave their, their sisters a menstrual kit as a gift. So this was them sort of getting bad packets and giving it to the sisters in front of everybody. And then the brothers literally, they vowed as part of this that anytime you need support in getting bad packets or in uh, if you have a stained skirt, then covering up for you, like I will be there for you. That's like my vow to you. Um, and it was so beautiful that since then we started to have a lot of sessions with men and boys in the community as well. But I think I'm slowly digressed from your, your, your question, but it was really that a lot of our community building happens over time and slowly. And it, it takes a lot of time and trust in community building, but um, that happens only with group sessions, identifying right social networks, um, building, making sure that we are giving them what they really want to some extent. So yeah. um, whether it's new knowledge or like fulfilling their curiosity or it's uh, giving them some sort of employment. No, thank you for explaining this in such depth. Uh, we obviously being network capital, so we study <laughs> communities in the networks of this uh, very often. We in fact hosted a, a writer, uh, Damon Centola, who studies social change. And he was explaining how you gotta make transformation happen at the edge of a network, create redundancy in networks for a lot of this to work. So you, when I was listening to you, I was able to think of some of those mental models. So thanks again for uh, explaining it. So, honey, one thing I've often uh, heard you talk about is that you don't want to impose your way of life or your solutions onto the community that you're serving. But uh, this is not easy, right? Because you you often feel that, you know, I do know I have the data, I have the degrees, I have the qualification, perhaps not the shared context all the time. How do you, how do you check yourself? And uh, could you talk us through a dilemma, maybe through a case study? Yeah, I was just going to give an example. I mean, this happens to me a lot. But the first one of the first times this happens to happen to me was actually uh, in 2013, I was in Raigar district. Um, and I was in a tribal village um, called Thakurwadi, 
jahan where they don't even have uh, like they did not even have 10 years ago they did not even have homes they had uh, mm. they were living in the jungles um and in the last 10 years a lot of development has happened in that space and they've gotten like concrete houses with marble flooring granite countertops like it's it's a very well off now uh, village and households there really have a lot of money um they have water supply in their house in their houses but none of them have toilets so not a single household they had toilets and i had come in with a like with a uh, intention of of in, of more of basically getting toilets to them in their households so that you know of course this is a need um and that you'd want to have toilets maybe there's just something holding you back i want to understand what that is and let's see if we can work together to to find a solution for it um but when in talking to those uh to the households um i mean i spoke to the sarpanch first and then from then we all, we would go on to talk to the other households um they all started to laugh at me and be like toilets ye itne chote se dabbe mein like why will we ever restrict ourselves and we can go out into this open field and near the whole river stream and we have so much of water there and like we are we very happy and we have in fact we we go there whatever time we want it's very comfortable for us and this is what men are saying when i i thought the women's stories would be different but women also said very similar things no we're very fine with this we have no issues it was only a village of 45 households or so the the hamlet of the village is only 45 households so they were like we're very comfortable there's not really much of an issue here i was like this is impossible like women are usually like always demanding toilets and they want this for their safety and there has to be some reason to get toilets here i was like there definitely has to be high rates of diarrhea dysentery something here you know like malaria rates should be very high and i would go to the local health centers and ask them what kinds of cases come up here like what kinds of issues are coming up and is there any higher than in areas where right next door there were villages that had toilets and they said actually kuch bhi difference nahi hai there is no difference at all in fact there are no health problems of not having toilets here now it's like okay so i don't understand how that's how that's possible that not having toilets is creating no issues for them at all socially health wise and then am i just trying to impose this western phenomena of a toilet here thinking and making decisions for them here in this case um the one thing i had just noticed there then was uh that the children in this community tended to be a little bit more stunted um they were just shorter in height um and i started to investigate that a little bit more and started to talk to the households and the, i was and because the, the i mean in general their heights were were short so it could be genetic but the children i mean who were in 9th grade were looking like they were 5 years old 6 years old and this is not they're not dwarfs in any way it is actually stunted height and they have like a whole population of the, the children there were were looking like that and children that were coming from villages that had toilets did not look like that um and so oh. i started exploring this actually more and i did my undergraduate thesis then on on this topic as well of looking at stunting levels and so on but it so it did teach me something there but i could not at the time impose toilets on them what instead we did was um i wanted to understand whether this is just a whims like a just a and a phenomenon i'm trying to impose on them or that they actually tr- could truly want but for that reason i needed to give them exposure to that in the first place so this is a very isolated community they had no idea but the benefits of a toilet anyway they had never seen this so we went on a field trip to mumbai um and the only way i could lure them to come to mumbai with me was by telling them that they would visit the siddhivinayak temple because they wanted to visit a temple there and they came to the temple after the temple we went to see toilets in slums 
and um, they actually saw and and I and the women that I had had been working with in slums spoke to the women from uh, from Raigad, and they were talking about how toilets had changed their lives. And just the women from Raigad started tearing up, and they were like, "Oh my gosh! Like we had no idea that a toilet could look like this. I had I like they thought a toilet meant a hole in the ground, a pit latrine that was very dirty." but they could see that these were fancy toilets with like wall with tiled walls and like they had like a, a a proper pot bowl and they were like wow i had no idea it could be so clean too and it just depends on how you maintain they'd never seen one before so i think then that gave them exposure and then they decided for themselves that and i was like okay now you have all the information that you need to make a decision because now you have seen one at first you do not have exposure now hmm. you decide do you want one and then they said actually didi yes we do want one and we then realized that i mean there's a there government schemes that were supposed to have, that they should have benefited from um where the central government gives 6000 rupees state government gives 5000 rupees for people below the poverty line to actually get toilets individual toilets in their households and a tribal population actually gets an additional tribal fund money we then would sit outside the tribal funds office in in thane um for hours and hours just waiting to get and ask them where is the subsidy why have we not received it and then we actually created a sanitation council in the village and together we went and we demanded this we had all these signatures from everyone in the community and then they wanted it themselves and then they got it so by the time i left this is about 3 3 and a half months later they had four toilets under construction there um they're not yet to see the subsidy but this is households themselves had said we want to actually go ahead and invest in this because we realize the importance of this yeah. so that was really yeah. happening but it was not hopefully because i imposed anything but you did not if anything uh, uh you re- rethought your strategy and uh, went about it differently um your undergrad thesis which year did you finally submit and uh, how was it received it was 2016 uh submitted that and um it actually we found that um it was a it was not a causational study it was only a correlation that's in in that case because we were collecting a lot of primary data on about 850 children comparing between siblings that had relocated from areas that did not have toilets to areas that had toilets and this is say look, looking at from a community in a slum in a slum which did not have access to any toilet moving to a building uh, with the slum development process where you actually had an individual toilet at home how between siblings uh, the height for age z score which is how we men- measure stunting levels of children um how that changed and we found that actually with an additional year of staying in a place that had a toilet actually you would find improvements in stunting but short term illness would be worsened so the good thing about stunting measurement is that it's an accumulated health change over time so you can measure like all the all the temporary shocks so say a person has typhoid or malaria or something in the short term they might have a poor health indicator in the moment but over time it doesn't really stunt you if you've had a lot of positive states in the neck in the in the remaining months or so so stunting really is able to capture that and we were able to capture that over time having a toilet is better however moving to a building setup or moving to a slum development uh in the under the slum development schemes um there is the a mix of water with like the water pipeline and the sewer lines and stuff which essentially contaminates the water that you're drinking which might actually cause you to have a lot more jaundice and typhoid than you've ever had in the slum so actually waterborne illnesses do increase when you're relocated and so they actually because i couldn't piece out just the effect of improvements in sanitation because there are lots of other improvements when you move from a slum yeah. to a building 
the, the topic of the thesis was really the effect of slum redevelopment on child stunting levels. Um, with a focus on sanitation as being the mechanism, uh, but there were lots of other improvements as well. So I think I am actually, as part of my PhD, continuing some of that research now to broadening the scope because I realized that every time I was going into the household and I was asking women about uh, just can I measure your child's height and weight, something that they always remembered, which is, uh, which is a very important thing for collecting objectifiable uh, health data is, um, is birth weight, that they all remembered their child's birth weight when like, at, at, like, and no matter how many years ago that was. And that's a very key data point to then understand, okay, so is this redevelopment process and is sanitation improvements or water quality improvements actually improving in like birth weight of, of children? Because that has a huge indication for future uh, potential and future um, uh, growth and everything for the, for the child and stunting levels. So that's kind yeah. of what I'm continuing to do now as well, because I realize there's a lot of scope there. Yeah, clearly. So 2016, 17 were two very important years uh, of, your, of your life, I think. Lots of um, inflection points lots of uh, wonderful set of achievements. Uh, when did you uh, hear about the, the Knight Hennessy program and why did you decide to apply? What was the whole process like? Yeah, actually I, um, so I was in the first year of Knight Hennessy. So nobody, it, there was not a class before, before us. Um, so we couldn't really ask anyone. And I found out about, it. I was living in Philippines at the time um, and I was thinking about grad school, but I wasn't sure when I would apply, when I would leave Philippines, when I'd come back to India. Um, so I had a friend of mine who was thinking of applying. He told me about it, I think two weeks before the deadline. I had not given my GRE. Um, and when he told me, I was like, oh my God, this actually sounds pretty fitting and like super uh, like amazing. Exactly what I'd want to do in grad school. I'd want to have this like other leadership experience, uh, which I don't know where else I could get in the US actually in uh, grad school at the time. Um, so I flew back to India actually immediately that week uh, to give my GRE and gave it and then came back, applied within that week, wrote up like 27 versions of the essays, uh, spent a lot of time on that application at the time um, and then applied immediately uh, and then just waited. Um, and then the PhD applications actually took the most time because uh, this application sort of went through in September. PhD applications were due in November and December. Um, I had very soon after quit my job in Philippines to move back to India to work on MENA full time. Um, so when I came back to India, uh, I was for some time actually working on my PhD applications as well here. Um, but yeah, that's yeah. how I found out about Nine Hennessy. Yeah, yeah uh, let's uh, let's dive deep into that process. So uh, sure. why grad school at that time? Because you were doing well, uh, MENA as an organization work was growing. And uh, why did you decide to do both an MBA as well as a PhD? And uh, what? how does that in, fit into your entire life plan? Many people want to get into the night, Hennessy. So any and all advice would be very you helpful. Yes, I mean, we'd love to chat uh, a lot more about that as well. Um, so actually, I, when I applied, I applied only for the PhD. Um, it was when I got to Stanford that I applied for my MBA in the following year. Um, but at the time, I was, I, was, I was missing a lot of the intellectual stimulation on the ground that I was really hoping for, in all honesty, that I was just, uh, when I was at Duke, I was surrounded by people who are always talking about ideas. And in India, when I was working on the foundation, 
the people I'm most interacting with are suppliers for our raw materials for pads who all of them question like Ye ladki kya kar rahi hai? the conversations I'm having with people are I mean they, they, like th- the stories are here on the ground they're motivating me to study and learn more about why this is happening but I felt like I did not have the skills anymore I felt like I was saturated everything that I knew I had I had already given and practiced I knew no more is how I felt at the time. And I was like, I don't have any more technical skills. And I also feel like I am, I'm missing this very like uh, intellectual environment where I can be hearing a lot of people talking about ideas and people who we can work together on co-creating something. I think MENA was a very lonely journey for me um, where I had started this, you know, this was one of the only, we had actually at Duke, we had pitched a lot of other organizations, which was all in a, in a team of people. MENA was the only one that ultimately I decided to take on and take off, but it was the only one that I was in along with women uh, in India, of course. Uh, I mean, the instru- instrumental reason why we have uh, where we are. But in many cases, was still, I felt a little bit lonely in that, like, I feel like my growth is being stunted a little bit, but I don't really know how else I can support. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe I need, I need to learn more to be able to understand how else I can support. So um, I think that was the reason. I, I think the timing was for a PhD, and this is like more practical, as well. you need a lot of recommendations from institutions uh, because it's academic if you have any more years off of uh, coming of not being in an academic institution you then have to go back and do another academic degree to get recommendations because that really matters recent academic recommendations so I knew that if I had not applied that year um, that I'd probably not be able to apply for many years Um, so hence, like I had almost like, you know, we had up to six recommendations we had to submit for PhD from all professors. Um, so it was, I was only two years out at the point at that time, or actually one and a half years out of undergrad. So then I could, could reach out to my professors who had been in touch with. And I think that was practically also timing wise, it sort of made sense that if that was ever something I wanted to do. And the reason I wanted to do a PhD was because I felt that a lot of the questions that I was seeing on the ground, um, they were not necessarily being asked in in research work. And even if they were being asked, they were not being translated into uh, people who could implement anything with that um, because it was not implementers trying to understand how to, like why these things work. And I'd always wanted to be in this intersection of evidence-based policymaking is like, how can I combine um, what we understand and see in research and being able to develop and produce that research myself because otherwise, if I don't have a PhD, I, I'll never be able to be a principal investigator myself and be able to ask those questions credibly and have the relevant skills um, and then be able to actually create in future. I wanted to create a think tank working on women's issues in India and how can we collect better data about women's health and employment, which are things that Melinda Gates talks a lot about as well is that we just don't have enough data about women to make any decisions from. So we're sort of making decisions based on data that's available, but that's very limited. So that's kind of one of the goals. And, and I felt that a PhD would give a lot more credit ability to to do that and I'd love to also teach in the future if um if at all uh you know that opportunity arises um so I think that's where the PhD and the MBA was uh more short term and immediate that I um I think an MBA brings with it a lot of networks and connections and funding 
um, that I think could potentially really help uh, the organization with, with MENA, I, I think as well. So I felt that there's a lot of the skills and um, networks uh, would be very relevant. And I'd never really worked in industry very much. Um, unlike a lot of my peers here who are coming from private equity, investment banking, consulting, I don't have that kind of experience. Um, so uh, maybe an MBA is like a little bit of a taste into what that world looks like and how the money world really works. Um, and you get a lot of very um, like stark realizations about how the nonprofit world does so many things differently and maybe wrongly in some cases, or, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, but in any case, I think the, the MBA program was more of a, um, a shorter term uh, goal for myself and PhD was longer term, clearly like in the future, I can do more research. Um, but I never thought of applying for them together. Um, it's sort yeah. of kind of worked together because of Knight Hennessy, actually, um, I was able to cover for the funding for both and hence it, it, it uh, the MBA also came up that I don't think I'd be able to afford the MBA but I can do it now because Knight Hennessy is there so why not I can do it now of course so you're able to um, you know use the same scholarship and distribute it over a PhD as well as uh, uh, the MBA program right it's for three years. So Nine Hennessy is a three-year scholarship program. And for, um, I think just for the benefit of the NC community, the Nine Hennessy Scholars Program is uh, a fully funded three-year graduate program for uh, essentially for any graduate degree and whatever discipline you'll be applying to at Stanford. Um, and one has to be admitted to Stanford for them to be applicable and like eligible for Nine Hennessy but the application process happens at the same time. They're trying to emulate and be like the Rhodes Scholarship of the US. The endowment is five times that of Rhodes. It's more than $750 million. Um, it's very well endowed. The program is a fantastic one here. It, it really like gives people, I think, an opportunity to meet with people of all different disciplines. Um, but it is, uh, I think now the, the rule actually is that when you're applying, you if you are planning to apply for a dual degree, you must apply for Knight Hennessy with that dual degree in mind, and you can't change your mind during the program. I was part of the first year, so we could experiment around, and they were still trying to figure out the rules. Um, but I think that that's, that's really what the, what the rule is now. So if any case people are applying with uh, keeping an MBA or a master's in education or a master's in computer science, which is, I think, usually the very, uh, like the, the two most popular degrees with MBA, um, then you'd apply with, with those two in mind, and the Knight Hennessy would then cover for that. But anything up to three years. This is uh, super helpful, Swani. I remember uh, like MBA is a fascinating degree because you get to meet so many people. They're poets, they're quants, uh, fewer poets than quants, but yeah, there are tens of uh, people all coming together. Do you sometimes feel like a fish out of water at that time uh, or do you fit right into the classroom? And what's the process of peer learning look like for you? Oh my gosh, I'm definitely yeah, the odd duckling. Um, I, I think that most people here are very, they understand uh, how finance works. Um, they understand a lot more with the tech world. Um, I think every time I'm coming in and I'm like, talking about stories and I'm talking about like how I'm driven by things and even like from the research world actually um, people are just from a very different background so in many cases I mean I, I love listening and this is a time when I'm actually not talking much at all because I'm just feeling like I'm absorbing so much um, and it's if, whether it's in conversations with people informally or whether it's informal conversations in classrooms I'm just getting to learn about a very different perspective from mine. Um, so no, it's definitely not fitting right in, uh, but in many cases, <laughs> that's why I'm doing it. It's like out of yep. the comfort zone. Yeah. 
How do you divide your time? What does a day in your life look like? You have your company, uh, you have business school, you have the uh, the PhD program. So not much sleep, I reckon. <laughs> I am trying to be do a better job of this. Um, I think initially it was um, easier to manage when I think the organization was still small and growing. And there was the, the team on the ground could completely manage the, op, the day-to-day operations. Um, and we also did not have big ambitions. You know, I think what happens is when, when, you have, when you have just ambitions that are to do with, I'll just work with these few women and I'll try to make sure that their lives have improved. And that's it. If your ambitions are limited, you're a lot more at peace and you're actually able to accomplish it. Um, over time, our ambitions exploded. And I think that at MENA, we're like, oh my God, we have to go all national. We have to start working with like 2 million women. And, and, and it's true, we want to do all of this, but it then starts to increase, of course, the, the scope of work and the amount of time you spend on it and the, type, the, the team members that you need to have to get that done. Um, and then in the PhD as well, as I started progressing and now research is coming to a point where like I need to focus all my energies on it then like the division becomes very difficult to manage. Um, and so I think right now I've been actually trying to prioritize what are the, the, what is like, what is the best use of every hour that I have and really optimize. So if it is, um, if I'm, if I ca- catch myself doing something operational, that might be easier for me to do, but actually it's not important for me to do for the foundation. I, I completely step out of it and I catch myself and I'm like, no, I will actually not get into this meeting. I will actually not. And you make this decision entirely um, because it's just not the, it's not going to, it's not going to be the best uh, productive output. So um, I think I have to do a lot more of that. Even with research, I think I, I would catch myself trying to think of new ideas and new research projects. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I have to complete the ones I'm working on right now and just have to do it because there's just no other way. So I think it's, it's not the, it's not giving justice, I think necessarily to each fully. And so you can't have it all. I think that's hundred percent true. Uh, but, but I think it's just realizing what is the most important output that you want from this year in your life? Um, what yep. is the most important output you want from this like next three years of your life? And what is the one thing that you need to do to get that done? Um, and then just put all your energies in getting that. And everything else is noise. It needs to be done at some point, but it's not something that you concentrate your brain power and energy in thinking new things, new ideas around. So I think I, I'm I'm trying to get to a balance, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's effort. Like, yeah. yeah, I don't know, how do you manage this? Well, uh, you know, uh, just try just a little bit like yours. But what I have found useful is that I try and focus on uh, on maintaining my energy and managing my energy, not my time. So I draw a lot of energy uh, through masterclasses, through podcasts, through my writing uh, for HBR, the book, Mint, etc. And um, yeah, that has been super helpful. I tend to not do things I don't want to do, which is quite helpful for energy management. And um, we, we figured out a way to outsource everything which is not our superpower on network capital. And I think that's a pretty interesting way. Find out your superpower, refine it, and then keep at it. Outsource everything else. Right. Very true. I think that's so true. I think that's, yep, that I think I completely relate to as well. Yeah. Uh, Suhani, um, 2017 uh, turned out to be an incredible year for, another, for, for, for a wide range of reasons, one of which was, uh, I think, um, Meghan Markle got a chance to meet with uh, the stakeholders of your organization. 
Um, I know a little bit about the meeting, but not too much. Why don't you fill us in on what was that like? You know a lot, Utkarsh. <laughs> I feel like with all this uh, life journey stuff. Um, with Meg and Mark, actually, we first met in uh, New York in 2016 at Glamour College Women of the Years. Uh, they had a luncheon um, and each of each each girl, each of the 10 girls was given a mentor. Um, she was a mentor to another girl um, at the at this luncheon, but she had heard about the work that we were doing um, through the person who was announcing about this and she was sitting in the audience. She then reached out to us a few months later saying, hey, I actually want to visit your organization in India and see the work that you're doing because I think that this is such important, uh, these are such important causes and challenges that women are experiencing. She then came down to visit us in January of the following year, so January 2017, in a secret visit um, because uh, at the time she was rumored to be dating, uh, I think, her future husband. Um, but at the time it was not clear. So the, a lot of the US tabloids were trying to really follow her and figure out questions from stakeholders that she was meeting mm -hmm. in India. Um, when she came to us, uh, we had two days with her, uh, limited time, but so much we wanted to show. So she, actually the moment she arrived, our women, they took her into a room and they were like, can we, can we put a sari on you? And she was like, yeah, sure. And I was so scared what she'd say. Um, but she was actually like very willing. And there were 10, 10 women, like, like, you know, draping a new sari on her. They got this, the, the measurement for her blouse right there and then. And they had a tailor who was sitting and fixing the measurement of the blouse. She then wore that blouse. They got bangles and shoes. They took her shoe size also right then and then. They went and got it from a local person. And once she was all dressed up and wearing all Indian clothes, um, and this is the Indian, the, this is the sari that usually shows up in a lot of her photos about her trip to India. India. It was actually a sari that comes from Govandi. It is like some 1,500 rupee sari, like literally. Um, but she looks beautiful in it, and they were um, and and they draped her in that. And then after that, she came out and she started having these like focus group discussion conversations with uh, women. And we had organized these discussions for girls of different age groups. So we had first like, eight to twelve or thirteen year olds that she was talking to about. Um, what it means like to go to school, um, when do they think about dropping out, if they don't think about dropping out, then what keeps them going, um, what are their brothers doing and so on. And then we went from there to having a conversation with younger girls um, that are in the age like teenagers and then a conversation with young women um, recently married and then older women and like even the entrepreneurs in the community, like the vegetable sellers and the women shopkeepers and like all of these women who were running their own businesses and understanding what really keeps, keeps them motivated and why did they start their own business. Um, and then we showed them around the community. She, she saw the pad factory. She saw all of the different ways in which we are motivating women to talk about their bodies and health. And it was phenomenal. She asked the right questions. She was not asking the basic, you know, like, why are they poor? Or, um, you know, it, like, it, it was more just like, she was really processing and understanding and then providing some actionable items. And she kept asking me, what are you doing about this, Sohani? Like, what can we be doing about this now? Like, how can we be growing this? Um, mm -hmm. So it was really, really impactful and powerful, I think, that trip. And hopefully that sort of relationship continues. Yeah, it, it's it always interesting to see the nuanced conversations and she followed up exactly. I mean, that's what's what I really admired about uh, about that particular. I don't want to make it a, a royal family discussion at all, but uh, I, I think that uh, the queen decided to honor you as well. And um, what was that for? And uh, how was the tete-a-tete -tete like? 
Yeah, that is actually unrelated. It happened in the same year, but it is unrelated to the Meghan Markle um, connection. Um, so that was through a Queen Young Leaders program, which was actually a four-year program that the Queen, it was called the Queen Diamond Jubilee Trust. Um, that organization dissolved after five years. So it was it was created for the purpose of uh, of supporting um, young leaders from the Commonwealth nations for like each year for four years. So um, in the first class, I think there were about um, maybe like a hundred students or hundred, not students, sorry, hundred young people. And then I think similarly every year from then on, um, I was, I think part of the second year um, of the Queen Young Leaders Program. Um, and they, it was like a, it was a course that you take with the University of Cambridge for a year. Um, and it's a remote course called Leading Change. Um, and at the end of that, you come to the UK, they fly you down for two weeks. The first week you're at Cambridge, you're finishing up the final um, coursework. And the second week uh, you're in London um, and you're basically meeting, they're connecting you with uh, mentors and with like uh, various media agencies, so BBC and other places. And you go to like, uh, you go to 10 Downing Street and you like go and understand how the parliament works. And then after that you, um, uh, see you then like you end your final visit on the final day to by meeting the queen and what she's giving to you is is the award the queen young leaders award which is just which is a which is a medal um which was is usually given to i think one or two people from each country so in my year it was me and ankit ankit kavatra who is the founder of feeding india um and now zomato feeding india so it was the two of us in my year and then in previous and future years as well there have been a lot of uh, other young leaders from india um so it was actually i mean such a at the time it was a very surreal moment we didn't know what we were getting into but up until then i had had such a great time in both cambridge and in london that like this was just like the cherry on the top um honestly the whole thing was such a great learning experience for me actually it was one of it was probably the first time i had had I was part of a leadership network or um, like internationally, and it was part of this like global conference. Uh, for many people there, they had they had been doing their work for like a decade before or for a long time. Um, so it might have been less impactful, but for me, it was very, very impactful, actually. And then at the end, when we met the queen, um, it was like a reassuring moment where you're like, wow, like, like things, unbelievable things can happen. You just have to keep doing the right thing. Um, and it was like, it was such a great uh, moment for, I think, Mena, and it really built a lot of credibility for us that we could be like, yeah. what by the Queen of England? And people are like, what? Who are you? Like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, yeah, I mean, we're doing legit work on the ground. And that's why. I mean, as the founder, you must be incredibly happy that these things are happy uh, happening, perhaps proud as well. But I think this benefits the organization as well. There are, there's definite compounding effects. So uh, can you talk about compounding one in your life and second in Mina's life, uh, how you've seen say different kinds of uh, milestones lead to different kinds of outcomes and how does keeping a learner's mindset help you absorb the most out of uh, the experience? Yeah, I think, um, I think that for, for Mena, we were still so young, uh, 2017, you know, we were just about two years old or so as an organization. So we um, were still morphing into what we would ultimately be. Um, and we were still working with a limited number of women on the ground. 
but having this sort of credibility here um, gave a lot of confidence, I think, in, the, in our women and in the team that we can do anything. Um, and that that is a sense of uh, power and confidence that you don't normally see. I mean, particularly in Oxnard, not amongst women. Um, and when we were like, hey, this is actually the Queen of England. Um, and then when we went to the royal wedding, I think afterwards, that was another huge point where we actually had two women from the slums going to the wedding. And when they came back, and in fact, when they were in London, they spoke to a donor who directly kept praising them. And they were like, you know, what you have done, do you know what you have done? And they were telling this to the, the two girls. And, and they, were, they were like, you know, we have no idea. Like, yeah, we are supporting some women. And they're like, no, you have changed women's lives. That's the biggest sense of fulfillment you can get in your life. And like the, the women just, when they kept hearing it and they came back to India, they were like, oh my God, you know, so many people believe in us. We have to not let anyone down. And it built this like unwavering confidence, I think, in our women that then like spread infectiously amongst others. And everyone now feels like what they're doing is not just what their task is. What they're doing is fulfilling a much, much bigger purpose. Um, and I think like that has been really helpful here. We've also, I think, you know, this is something, Utkash, I don't know if this is exactly what we're trying to get to with the learning attitude, but um, we have over time um, struggled on the field with uh, field staff. You know, when you suddenly give power to women that have not had any power before or a sense of realization of that power, um, they think then that they start to know it all. And, um, and I feared that I would ever be in that state. And I feared that our team could ever be in that, like could get into that state at some point. And so I tried very hard to always be like, listen, I don't know anything much. Whatever I'm telling you is all I know, but I ask 10 other people around me for uh, like, I ask them questions and that's the only way I keep learning. And said the same thing to the team. And I constantly want the team to feel the same way that they don't know it all and they cannot know it all because it's just this process of learning. Um, and I think we have really struggled with that, especially for women that the stay, the longer they have stayed at MENA, especially on the field, and you start bossing everybody around on the field because you have this like, I'm the dada of the community now. Um, it's very difficult to start to change that mindset then. Um, and we are, what we are doing is trying to empower them to get into that state. We want you to all be dadas, but we don't want one dada. We want everyone to be of that state because that creates a sense of inequality and false sense of uh, superiority that should not exist. So um, I, I don't know if this is what you're trying to get to, but I think that this credibility has gone overboard to some extent to some sometimes where people have at MENA started to think that, yes, we know a lot more than uh, we actually know. Um, and I think we've been constantly trying to change that. Um, and the way we're changing that, I think, is also through constant retrainings. We tell people that actually the work that you've been doing, pause it. You have to be retrained into it because you don't know it. Um, yeah. And you know a certain way of doing things, but the world is rapidly changing. And every year we have to keep refining the ways in which we are talking. We have to talk about technology a lot more now. I mean, a lot of our work in the last year has, particularly because it's been online, it's shifted so much with a focus on technology and we're now trying to provide more smartphone and IVRS based solutions to women and our team doesn't know how that stuff works, but they still feel like they do. And so we've been trying to be like, no, 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 let's unlearn and learn again. Um, but anyhow, like, uh, yeah. Yeah, this is so helpful. Early in the uh, masterclass, you discussed about uh, a mentor's mission that you're trying to live through and take, take it to the next level. I feel that you've built also a peer-to-peer -peer mentoring or peer-to-peer -peer support system. And I'm sure you have, still have a tribe of mentors. What, in your opinion, makes for a good or a strong mentor-mentee relationship? And should 
young men and women go out there looking for mentors or should do mentors happen to them? What's the process? Um, yeah, I feel like you're neck on this, um, but I'll try to give my two cents. Um, I think mentors are, the best mentors are also sponsors. So that they yep. will vouch for you right in the boardroom, that they will try to get you the resource that you need. They will, they truly believe in you and they're with you, whether you're, whether you're working um, well, whether you're actually not performing well, they'll be the ones actually encouraging you. Um, so I think for, for, for me in my uh, lifetime, I have never really tried to seek out mentors very consciously. Um, but if I have ever felt that I did not receive the right type of advice at any point, that I would then uh, try to seek the right type of advice from the right people around me. Um, and whether those people end up becoming mentors or not, I think is like a, um, is a, is a different thing. But I think it was, it's mainly that I want to make sure that I'm getting the, the questions answered and then that I'm surrounding myself with people that um, truly believe in me, even at times when I don't believe in myself. Um, there are many times that I don't believe in myself and I'm just sort of, uh, you know, like, like talking about how I feel like I'm going astray and maybe I'm thinking about too many ideas or too many things and how do I really focus and maybe I'm not the right person to be focusing. And then I have these mentors who are like, or people that are around me who are like, no, 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 you need to keep going. Like, this is like, believe in yourself and that, you know, you can do this and you're not alone. And so I think like, you just need to surround yourself by people who really motivate you and, and truly believe in you no matter what. Um, and ultimately they can become mentors. Um, but I think there is a, there's something to say if you don't think that you have the right type of advisors or people around you, I think consciously trying to find people who could be mentors is a good idea um, yeah. because mentorship is something that doesn't automatically, particularly in India, I don't think it is a very, I, I, it's not like a, I think a very um, like natural way of, of being and of professors to say like at, at university, I was very lucky that at Duke, I had professors who truly became my mentors over time, but that's just the way they're also trained to think. And that's the way, I mean, they, they're kind of advisors for you. Um, in many Indian institutions, that may or may not be the case. So I think, um, I, I mean, I ask my parents this a lot as well, because in their generation, they really didn't have mentors. So they didn't have this concept. They didn't ever talked about it so openly. And my parents say that, no, we don't have mentors. We've always made our life decisions ourselves. And that's kind of shocking. And they're like, and then I think about just how they don't even speak about it. And maybe that's one of the reasons why. And now we need to raise more consciousness and awareness about this, that you can't do things yourself. So you need people who are constantly guiding you. And it also gives you a sense of humility to understand that you're not, if even if you achieve success, it's not you and it's a group of people around you. And if you don't surround yourself with that group of people and you truly try to achieve something alone, you will have that sense of achievement alone that is very short-lived. Um, yeah. So it's better to really surround yourself and then climb the ladder, um, if at all. Yeah. So I would say definitely, if one doesn't feel like they have the right mentors, try to find people who are positive around you and motivating you, um, even at times when you're low. Um, and I think that those people can really be great mentors for you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, two things really jumped out to me about what he said. The one is the distinction between a mentor and a sponsor, because uh, research suggests that women tend to have very few sponsors, um, unfortunately. And the other was mission-driven mentors. I think the mentor you spoke about early on in the masterclass, you and that person had a very strong alignment of mission. And I think 
long-term relationships need a sort of alignment because you gain as much from uh, having a meaningful relationship which two ways rather than a unidirectional um, you know tactical advice to so to speak right no 100% agree i think um with the uh, with the mission driven mentors i found that right now one of my mentors is uh, so Dr. Jokin Arpatam, actually, the one who was talking about, he passed away a few years ago. Um, he was he was he was very old at the time, and and he it was it was expected, um, but it was at the time quite tough, and I felt very lost um, again. And I was like, you know, now I'm sort of having to go back and do everything completely by myself. And then um, Mr. Rajiv Kumar, who is now like who sort of replaced Dr. Jokin on our board, and he has been a constant mentor to me. The reason we connected was because he too wants to support women his entire life. And it's, it's his mission to pr- try to provide them with either employment opportunities or some sort of empowerment. And I think you're very right, Utkarsh, is that the reason why we keep connecting is because every time we have a disagreement on something, um, or every time I'm debating between two things or three things, we come back to our mission. And that's what, because we're both aligned there, we know that whatever, and I know that whatever advice he's giving me is to ultimately fulfill that mission in the best possible way. And that's why yeah. I believe him. And that's why I trust him. So I think you're yeah. very right. Awesome. Uh, let's look at growth plans and financial sustainability a little bit. Um, h- how are you thinking about your future? Do you have like hard set three-year goals and, and, a, and a mission to get there? And what's the path to, uh, financially supporting and maybe perhaps uh, monetizing at some point. Yeah, so actually Mena Mahila, when we started as well, it was a social enterprise. So we have always intended to generate revenue and ultimately try to self-sustain. Um, so we the, the products that we manufacture, which, is a, which are six different types of uh, napkins. So there are four different types of sanitary napkins, two types of maternity napkins. Maternity napkins are those that we sell to hospitals and maternity homes, um, including hospitals like Bombay Hospital, KEM Hospital in Mumbai, like some of the larger ones. Um, we're the sole providers for maternity there. And maternity napkins are used post-delivery after labor uh, for women. And that's actually our um, one of our self-sustaining arms. Um, and as we grow, the, the hope was always that the ratio of donations to revenue actually tilts towards revenue being much higher. So right now we have about an 80-20 split and our revenue is very, very limited in comparison to um, how much we actually need. And that's driven by the fact that the most expensive things that we are doing right now are educational and awareness programs, which we have found to be the most impactful and the most needed by the community because women really don't know why they're getting their period and they need to be educated about this in various contexts. So if that's the case, it's very difficult for us to monetize the education awareness element. The only way that we could sustain it is potentially by by increasing profitability of the products. Um, And it's very difficult to do that if we are in a semi-automated, low-cost sanitary napkin manufacturing type unit where the biggest chunk of cost is labor and are uh, com- like not our competitors, I guess, but like the Johnson and Johnson, the PNGs of the world are actually making these products at a fraction of the cost, um, and they're actually able to sell it much cheaper. So, if we are truly wanting to reach the population that we are serving at the lowest possible price, we are actually the highest cost provider to do that. 
And so we shouldn't be the ones actually providing it at the lowest possible price. So instead, what we've started, what we've started to do over the last three years, is um, is trade, and we so essentially get the pads manufactured third-party manufacturers as well and then uh, provide and distribute those to women in the community and be able to do that at a much lower price actually because our labor cost is there saved um, the way we provide employment there then is through distribution rather than through production um, which is actually a lot more sustainable and viable as well as it can employ many more women um, at the same time uh, we are increasing our um, digital footprint and trying to provide women with employment opportunities otherwise. Um, it's kind of too early stages to even get into the details of that, but essentially we, we, we are looking at other revenue streams um, for the organization to sustain that are beyond the products right now as well. But the products is one way to scale and grow and be able to self-sustain yeah. that part. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I think that uh, based on my understanding of it, uh, cohort-based courses might work really well for your skilling program. We should chat separately about it. But on Network Capital, we run a lot of these like uh, live cohort-based courses, and the way you're trying to go about your skilling models uh, yeah. might might go down down that route. A lot more focus, people community-driven, tech-enabled, and then we can enable a lot of that skill. So uh, we should talk more about it. 100%. We are actually trying to now, uh, from the new financial year, so April 1st onwards, launch digital literacy programs for our women and girls, for smartphone-based, smartphone particularly, um, because that's what they all have access to at home. Um, I mean, if you have ideas on that, we should totally talk about this because we're kind of trying to build it up and trying to speak to advisors on it. But yeah, I would love to chat about yeah. it. We're trying no, to sure. let more technology, like trying to bridge the digital gender divide, which we find that women tend to have less access, but we can yeah. help provide them with that access and then teach them the right yeah. skills they need to be able to succeed. You know, it's interestingly, uh, yesterday we had Sairi Chahel, who's the CEO of Shiro's, and today we have you. I, I told Sairi as well, my mom's a writer and she's written most of her life about invisible women. Mm -hmm. And she just won the Science Academy Award. So she constantly tells me about, uh, you know, like tell me about the more business uh, folks trying to do um, work in the invisible women's space. So, you know, I mean, I'm definitely going to show her this masterclass. She'll be delighted. But I think like just based on, uh, based on what you said, like a cohort based class coupled with a community, like a minor community could be a very scalable product. We should perhaps join hands uh, and uh, take it forward. I, I think this could be incredible. So let's set up time for that, uh, Suhani. Let's do but that. Uh, before, we, uh, before we let you go, um, just any parting advice on some of the dilemmas that you might have had uh, in your journey, some of the more um, difficult decisions that you might have had to take, what has really helped you and uh, who or what set of folks help you today in your thought process? Yeah, um, great questions, tough questions. Um, I think we've had dilemmas from the beginning. Um, I have a dil I have dilemmas going on even right now. I think when we're just thinking about whether MENA continues to be a nonprofit in the way it's 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 set up, where we're constantly reliant on donations over time. Um, and I think in the Indian uh, like legal and government scenario at the moment, it's difficult to continue to be. Um, a nonprofit, um, and in many cases, it's much easier to convert and like just have a for-profit registration. Um, and I think that's like one dilemma that I've gone back and forth, even like 
in my mind about just what morally too, like what what do we stand for? Like, and how are we building this? Are we building this in the right way? Is truly the way in which we are set up scalable? Um, it, are we like the right people to be talking about technology right now on the ground in slums? Um, it's just lots and lots of questions. And um, I think that I am very fortunate. I mean, A, to be at Stanford, which is the hub of a lot of this. So I can talk to a lot of people around me here. Um, and, and I mean, they're pushing me in one direction, which is a very clear direction, but then mm -hmm. they also know little about, I think sometimes the context in which we're really talking about and where many of the things that they say like are amazing, but just yeah. not feasible. Um, mm -hmm. And then I have to then, like couple that with people that know feasibility more um, and way more than me. And, and that are people like, so I talk to my women actually a lot. So every time we get ideas from here, I process them and think about them. And then every Friday we have a meeting and it's a, it's called a Mena Bowl. Mena Bowl is um, just like a brainstorming meeting with the team where we think about usually an idea that I'm telling them about, I'm thinking about this. Like, what do you think? And then all the 15,000 challenges that can come up, they all tell me all those challenges. And then I then end up talking to then uh, like Mr. Rajiv Kumar, like on our board and my parents, I speak to my parents a lot about these issues. Um, I think uh, I have two other like just advisors and people in India who I normally get to with some specialized things. So whether it's in healthcare industry, I'll ask a specific person. Um, if it's in skilling employment, I'll ask a specific person. And then that's kind of about it. And we like brainstorm and we think through these, these issues. Um, so I think that it's, it's, I feel fortunate actually that to have the right people around to do this and have the mix of two types of people. So one that's really like all about idea generation and the other that's really about constraining, but we need both um, to figure out what is the right solution to implement. But and like that is something that, because I'm in the middle sort of in this dilemma where I want to do all these things that I think that would be incredibly powerful to change women's lives. I just don't know if we are set up in the right way to do that sure is truly supported and that we're not doing them wrong in any way by holding back opportunities that we think we could provide to them just because we have internally not enough capability or enough resources we should be able to i mean there there's too much money out there we should be able to get those resources and the right people for people that truly need it and we do have access to the people that truly need it and we know how much they do um, so we can't go wrong um, and that i think keeps bogging me down um, but I think that I do have the right people around, at least for now, who, who can really help me think in the right way about what is the best way to support. Yeah, this has been incredibly inspiring uh, for all of us here. I can't wait to share the final masterclass with you and the other manners. It seems like there are manners everywhere, not just here in uh, where we live, but in countries all around. And uh, I think this is the beginning of a long-term partnership, Sohani. Keep doing the work that you're doing. And we can't have you uh, wait to have you back for our summer school and other programs. Really appreciate your time. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Atkash. Really appreciate this. And it's, it's really, I've loved and followed the Network Capital community for a while. Um, and I think our team has as well. So it's really an honor. <laughs>